Father, as we come this morning, we lift up all of our thanksgiving to you. We give you thanks and praise for all the blessings in our life. We, we ask that you would open up our eyes even now to realize just how much we have been blessed with, to be able to see and claim and enjoy all that you have given us as a gift. Our thanksgiving this morning, Father, comes primarily from the gift of your Son and his life for us, his death for us, and resurrection for us. We pray that this morning you would use our time together in worship and in the scriptures and in fellowship to shape us into his image, to form us into more Christ-like humans with ears to, to listen to and obey the promptings of your spirit within us. Come and speak to us this morning. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray all these things. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see everyone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and open up with me to Matthew chapter 25. If you don't have a Bible, there is a black hardback underneath the seat around you that you're more than welcome to grab and open up with us. If you'd like to, we'll be in Matthew 25 this morning. We are in the middle of a sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And if you don't know what the Apostles' Creed is, it's one of the earliest statements of faith that the Christian community put together, kind of summarizing some of the key beliefs in Scripture. And so the Creed um, kind of takes some huge, big, important foundational truths that you find in the Bible and, and, and kind of puts them in this tight formula, this this. This very precise creed, and, and, and when you squeeze the creed, out comes Scripture, and out comes all these truths about God and about um, ourselves and about God's work in our lives that you find in the Scriptures. And so this morning we are at the very end of the middle part of the creed, which is about Jesus. And this morning we are talking about Jesus' second coming, which is a very interesting topic. Um, if you are anything like me, you grew up in a Christian culture that was very much concerned with the second coming of Christ. Um, most of, in fact, the times when I heard someone present the gospel to me were based on the second coming. The idea was, right, if Jesus showed up today, are you ready? Uh, and if Jesus did show up and you weren't ready, how would you feel being separated from your family and your friends and all of those things? So do you want to go to heaven or do you want to stay with your parents? Like, I stay with my parents wasn't the smartest kid, but I knew that choice. But in the scriptures, since we see them, we'll, what we'll see is that the second coming is a, a belief, the, the belief that Christians have that Jesus will come again. It's a belief that, that maybe shouldn't be wrapped in fear, that maybe shouldn't be used to try to scare people into belief and obedience, but really is one part of the good news of what Jesus has done for us. And even his second coming and judgment is, at the very end of all things, a good thing, a part of the good news. And so I'll read the creed for you. It it goes like this. I believe in God, the Father Almighty. I don't know if that sounds familiar to you. Maker of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Now, here comes our phrase for the morning. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. 
He will come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and life everlasting. Amen. Now, Matthew 25 is where you'll find the fullest, um, most detailed expression of this belief, that Jesus will come again and that his coming, his return, will involve a judgment. Um, In all of the Gospels, this is where you get the fullest picture of um, the presentation of what will um, that event entail. And so if you'll read with me in Matthew 25, we'll pick it up in verse 31. It reads like this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, when Jesus returns, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations, and he will separate people one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or feed you, or thirsty, and give you a drink? And when did we see a stranger and welcome you? Or when did we see you sick, or in prison, and and visit you? And, And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he'll turn and say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry. And you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, or thirsty, or a stranger, or naked, or sick, or in prison, and and didn't minister to you? And he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, what you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do to me. And these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Now, if there was a passage of Scripture that I thought the church would benefit from reading over and over and over and over again, it might be this one. If, if, there, was, if there was a passage of Scripture that I think could correct the actions and rhetoric of the church in certain ways, I think it would be if, if the truths taught in this passage— would sink into our hearts and our minds and our souls, would convert our imaginations. Jesus here in this passage returns, and when he returns, he divides out the righteous and the unrighteous, his people and those who are not his people. And, and both of them in the passage are surprised at how they got divided. Because Jesus says, I was sick and you you healed me. I was hungry and you fed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And, and the one group says, no, you weren't. <laughs> that never happened. And he goes, no, when you went to the prison on Highway 99, you, you were visiting me. When you went to church in the driveway and you fed the homeless, you were feeding me. And the other group has the same exact answer, right? That didn't happen. You were never in prison and I never did not go to you in prison. He says, nope, every time you didn't go, you also weren't going to me. Every time you didn't clothe me when, when I was naked, you, you didn't do that to me. When Christians talk about the second coming, 
too often what we do is we take a picture that we're given of it in Scripture and we literalize it. And, and by that I mean we take some imagery that we get and we, can, we, we, we think that that's the only imagery that's in the Bible about what will happen when Jesus comes and we take everything about that literal. We think it's like a videotape recording of the future. So here's what you've got in Scripture. You've got multiple accounts of what it will be like when Jesus comes back. And they all, instead of contradicting each other, complement each other. They all give you kind of a, a, a taste of what will be true about that scenario. And what you can't do as a Christian is one of two things. You, you can't or you shouldn't take just one of these pictures and pretend that this is the only truth about Jesus' second coming. And this is exactly how it's going to be. And every metaphor and picture, right, is not imagery or symbolism. This is exactly what will happen in the world. The other thing you shouldn't do is get distracted away from the what into the how. And this is what the creed does not do. You'll notice the creed doesn't get into the how of Jesus' second coming or the when. It doesn't get into the mechanics. It stays with the foundational what, the truth, the belief. Too often Christians have gotten trapped into puzzles they've created around themselves about how Jesus will return. They've made predictions and they have tried to read the signs of the times and they have too often embarrassed themselves to often hurt other people in the process of doing that. And so this morning, I want to talk about the, the foundational truth here behind Jesus' second coming. Um, and I want to, in particular, like I said, show you that this is a part of the good news. So uh, in the creed, when we're talking about Jesus, you have past, present, and future tense. Um, a, a short summary of the early creed would be, Christ has come, Christ has risen, and Christ will come again. That's what you get here. You got the past tense. He came, became a human, was crucified, suffered, died, was buried, resurrected, ascended. Then you've got present, sits at the right hand of God. And now you've got future, will come again. Christians believe when we say this that there is something out in front of us. And for Christians, the, the belief in the second coming is a belief that instills in us hope, anticipation, and participation, invites us into participation. Too often, we, we take the, the second coming and we make it about fear, and we make it about worry, and we make it about guilt and coercion. But I want to reclaim it this morning, for what I think it truly is, which is a message of hope, a message of anticipation, and an invitation to participate. So we'll do that in, in three ways. Um, first, we'll talk about the nature of judgment itself, the nature of justice. Then we'll talk about the judge himself, the person who will be doing the judging, who will return. And then finally, we'll talk about the measurement of justice, the measurement of this judgment. Um, uh, I was asked a, a couple weeks ago to run for political office. And I said, you're talking to the wrong person. Um, don't know if you've listened to my sermons or not, but I really just mocked the system. I have no constructive solutions. There's a lot of jokes. And I uh, found out that there's a big movement right now to get people under 35 to start running for local offices, uh, part of this like grassroots populist political environment that we're in. And I was just like, I'm so sorry that you're wasting your time because there's so many other people that you could probably be talking to right now, not me. And, and they had this organization and the, the, the kind of pitch for me was that if you run, we'll fund you, right? I mean, we've got all the tools together for a campaign. We've got staff members like, we just need people with a platform who want to run and get into the, the kind of rat race. 
And, and they said, you just got to kind of champion one of these issues that we have. You don't have to believe everything that we believe, right? You don't have to, we know that you're in a certain context and certain things won't sell, right, to your audience. And so they had this like list of issues and it just as a hypothetical in my mind. I was like, okay, if I was going to do this, is there anything on this list that I could champion, that I feel comfortable, you know, going from, from place to place talking about? And one of them stood out to me, and, and it's one that I think I could champion, which is criminal justice reform. If you're unaware, um, many of us think that we've got a problem in the nation and in the world when it comes to the way we treat criminals, um, when it comes to the way we address the solution of people who break the law or people who hurt other people. And so there's a lot of different things going on. At, at the root of this um, is... Uh, kind of an economic system. So we have for-profit prisons. Um, And so if you have a prison that makes money, then you have a prison that needs to be filled. Does that make sense? So the system is not set up to get people out of prison. It's set up to get people into prison. And this has negative consequences for everybody, not just the criminals, us as well. And, and so what happens oftentimes, you've got minimum sentencing, thing like, things like that. Um, I don't know if you've seen this Every now and then, a judge will get busted, and a side deal he had with the prison will come to the surface. And then you'll go back and realize, oh, he was sending all those kids to, to prison, and the prison was paying him because they needed to fill those seats. It's a business. That's how businesses work. And so what happens, right, you get a kid, nonviolent offender, and make a mistake, as kids do, I've been told, and they get sent to jail or to prison, and for a few years of their life there, they learn how to be an expert, violent criminal. And really, that's how they have to live to survive in that prison. And then they get put back into the real world without the skills necessary to be a nonviolent, productive citizen. And sure enough, in the next year or two, they commit a violent act, go back to prison for the rest of their life. And that's kind of what's been happening over and over, rinse and repeat, um, not even just in America, but, but around the world. And so I think there's some reform that needs to take place around that. But I think that it, it falls back to a more foundational issue that goes even into our theology, into what we believe about God, which is what is the true nature of justice? What does it mean to bring justice to a situation? What would it mean to make a judgment? What would it mean for God to judge the world? You've got two kind of primary competing philosophies, what you might call retributive justice and restorative justice. And, and the difference is this. Retributive justice is vengeance. It's an eye for an eye. It's saying if you did something bad, something bad will happen to you. It's punishment. And it's kind of what the system's built on right now. And then you've got restorative justice, which says if you've done something bad, we want to fix it, including you. The difference would be this. Someone who, who commits some violent act right? In retributive justice, you would commit that violent act on them, an eye for an eye. In restorative justice, you would rehabilitate them. You would seek for them to not only be reconciled to the person they hurt, but for them to repent, to change from that kind of lifestyle, from those choices, to recognize the error of their race, to become reintegrated into society as a positive contributor. And for ages, people have often thought that God was as petty as we are. And that when God wanted to judge the world, he would do it with vengeance, with punishment, with condemnation, the way that we often want to just slap back the person who has slapped us. But I think what you'll find if you read through the whole corpus of Scripture is that the the idea of justice in the Bible is much more 
um, restorative. It's, it's much more about rehabilitation. And so um, judgment in the Bible, this theme of justice, is less about punishing and rewarding and more about ordering. It's more about taking things that are out of place and putting them back into place. You'll see right in the life of Jesus, when he comes, when he sees a sinner, the idea is not to just destroy that sinner. It's to recreate that sinner, to change that sinner, to rehabilitate him. That's kind of what the whole gospel's about, right? If you take that away, we kind of have no hope. You've done a lot of wrong things. God's going to kill you. The whole thing's kind of built on the idea, right, that there's a second chance for us. That not only will we be forgiven, but we'll be changed. That not only do we have to like muster up the strength for that, God will do that for us. He'll provide his spirit in our hearts and in our minds and our lives. Justice is reordering, putting things right. And it's a, um, it's a corollary to the belief that God's creator. So to believe that God created all things, created it good, and is committed to it maintaining good, means that God is also maintaining um, or committed to maintaining that things will be good in the end. That one day God will come back and reorder things to be good once again. Right? The world right now is out of order. There's chaos and evil and violence and sin and death and pain. And, and God's committed as creator to reorder his creation, to put all wrongs back right, to put all things out of place back into place. And this is where the idea of judgment comes into the picture. It's, it's not as negative as sometimes we often think about it. If you ever want a room to be clean, you have to clean up the room. And so for Christians, when, when we talk about and think about judgment, we're actually talking and thinking about God coming and reordering things so that we might enjoy eternal life. Which is why we might say judgment is a, a belief of hope. Judgment is, is something that Christians look forward to. Not as a spanking that's coming our way. Not as the rightful destruction of the people we don't like but as the fulfillment of the gospel of God returning and saying, this is wrong and this leaves my creation because I'm committed to creation being good. Judgment is recreation. It's new creation. I saw the movie Split recently. I don't know if you've seen this movie. Um, it's, a, it's about a man with, yeah, some scared faces. It's, it's a little intense movie. It's about a man with a, a multiple personality disorder. And so he's got these different personalities that live inside of him. And it's a you know, fascinating movie, fascinating kind of personality disorder. And it reminds me, though, often of how Christians talk about the second coming. So if we've, we've talked about justice, the nature of justice. Now we have to talk about the identity of the person who's coming to judge us. And this is where Christians might anticipate judgment. You might think that seems like an odd thing to say, right? If you are about to go to trial, you're probably not anticipating going in. You probably want to wait that off as long as possible. But what if the judge was your friend? What if the judge was committed to your good? What if the judge actually was willing to take all of whatever was coming your way on himself? Then the idea of judgment might be a little less fearful for you. It might be something you could anticipate, you could lean into. Now here's the mistake that Christians make. And I've, I've, I've said this and argued this in multiple places. I've written about it um, too much. Um, the, the, the belief that gets propagated around Christian circles is this. Jesus came the first time in a certain way, but he's not coming back that same way the second time. So he came in humility the first time. 
And he's coming the second time with a shotgun. The AK-47. With power. Now, on paper, right, there's nothing wrong with saying that. He came in humility, he's coming in power. But you might start to question these things, right? Did he not come in power the first time? Seemed pretty powerful. At least to me. And then Jesus being God, it's one of the things that means to say that Jesus will be the one who does judgment because in the scriptures, God is the judge. And so when we say that Jesus is coming to bring judgment, it's one of the way Christians were continuing to affirm that we believe Jesus himself is God. When we say that Jesus is bringing judgment, we have to remember that the Jesus who's coming back, the Jesus who's returning to bring judgment, is the same Jesus we met and know in the Gospels. It's the same Jesus who showed mercy to the prostitutes, to the sinners, to the tax collectors. He's the same Jesus who taught nonviolence. What, what happens, and, and it happens because of this, people will take a passage in Scripture, right? And they'll say, this imagery is literal. And so they'll let that one passage of Scripture override the entire character and personality of who God is and who Jesus has revealed to us. And, and what you get is a picture of Jesus coming back where something's happened between the time he resurrected and the time he's gotten back. And a lot of anger and bitterness and resentment has built up. And he's coming back to pummel people. And, and I'm not exaggerating. When people, when people get excited about this, he's coming back to kill people, to destroy. There will be blood and pieces of flesh everywhere. Now, notice what's happening. If you know much about the first century and why the Jewish people rejected Jesus, it's because they wanted a violent king. They wanted someone to come in and kill their enemies. And they were disappointed when Jesus wasn't about that. Watch how brilliant and disobedient Christians are. We want the same thing, but we don't want to make that mistake. So we separate it out. We say, well, he didn't do that back then, but when he comes back, yeah. That's when he's going to kill all the people we don't like. And it's going to be epic. You're making the same exact mistake. The same people who couldn't recognize Jesus the first time are also not going to be able to recognize him when he comes back. If you think that that's on his agenda. Yes, you have imagery that, that, that looks like that. I concede this. But there are ways of interpreting that that don't cause a, a, a split in Jesus' personality. That don't cause him to... to develop a personality disorder over the course of history. Um, Jesus returns, and he has blood on his robe. And when I was a kid, that was presented to me as, you know, like the ultimate MMA fighter. You do not want to fight someone who shows up with blood on his clothing. It's bad. It's a bad scene. Just leave. It's probably not all of his blood. And yet, in Revelation, where you get this imagery, it's pretty clear that blood is... Jesus' blood. He comes not to shed blood, but he comes bringing his shed blood. And yes, Jesus comes with a sword, and that sword knocks people down. But that sword's coming out of Jesus' mouth. And I don't know if you ever sword fought, but it's hard to do when you're holding it in your mouth. It's not an effective killing machine. Maybe it's symbolism. Maybe this is not a literal picture. Maybe that sword coming out of Jesus' mouth is the power of his word. 
And maybe when you see uh, in Revelation 19 a picture where Jesus comes back and, and kills all of the evil empire and evil people, and there's flesh and blood rising up, and there's birds eating on it, maybe that's not supposed to be a literal presentation of what will happen, but rather maybe that's supposed to communicate something else to us. Maybe not the how God will finally get rid of evil, but the truth that God will finally get rid of evil. Maybe that imagery, all that violent, bloody imagery, is not trying to tell you something about how it will be accomplished, but about the finality of it, about the ultimacy of it, about the fact that it will be finished. Jesus, I would want to say very clearly, is the exact same person when he returns. And this is why, as Christians, you and I should not be fearful about his return. These not as fearful as I was as a kid. I was scared. But the Jesus who's returning is, is one whom I know. It's one who's returning to bring judgment. But guess what I already know? He's already borne God's judgment for me in his own body. He's already taken that for me. So whatever we mean by the judgment he's bringing, it's not a judgment that God's coming to pour out on me for me to be scared of, like a criminal getting hit with a stick. This is my Savior returning. This is something I can anticipate, I can lean forward towards. And in the Middle Ages, in the center of England, there's an area called East Anglia, and there were shepherds, and they had this tradition that is pretty amusing. Um, when these shepherds died, uh, they'd be buried in a coffin, and they'd make sure to pack the coffin full of wool. They'd be surrounded in wool in the coffin. And the idea was this. When Jesus returns to come and judge the living and the dead, he would see the wool and realize, oh, they were shepherds. And Jesus knows a thing or two about shepherds. So some will actually debate maybe Jesus was a shepherd. Um, at the very least, when Jesus preaches, he preaches as if he knows the job of shepherding pretty intimately. And the idea would be um, for these shepherds in the Middle Ages that when Jesus comes back and sees that they were shepherds, he'd have sympathy on them, empathy with them for understanding it's a hard job to be a shepherd. It takes a lot of time to chase after this wayward sheep. And maybe there's a reason they didn't come to church all that often. That's why they did it. It's to explain their church attendance. And while it's a little amusing, I think it actually gets to a truth. When Jesus comes back, he doesn't come as one who doesn't know what it's like. He doesn't come as a foreigner. He comes as one who has become a human being. In Hebrews, we're told we have an empathetic high priest who knows what it, how difficult it is to live in this evil and fallen world, who's been tempted even more than we have, who's experienced the evilness of this world more than we have. He comes to somebody not looking at someone who he cannot imagine how they ever got themselves in that mess. He comes to someone knowing what it's like. You know, I'm sure that all of us have been through a life situation I'm going to take care of your parents or a relationship problem uh, or a sickness, illness of some sort or a job of some sort. And that status, that experience in your life has given you more empathy for other people in that same situation. So, right, for me, I'm a pastor. Before I was a pastor, right, pastors were just these mythical creatures who worked one day a week. Right? Nothing much more other than that. And now when I, I, I see a pastor, hear about a pastor, 
I have a lot more empathy for that person. I, I actually tend to give pastors the benefit of the doubt when I hear people talking bad about them. And I happen to go, you know, maybe that pastor needs encouragement and a prayer and a hug and not your gossip and criticism. But why do I, why do I take that stance? Because I've experienced it. I know what it's like. I know that, you know, maybe you just didn't sleep very much last night. Maybe like six people called him yesterday. Maybe his family's mad at him because he's not able to stay in touch with them the way he would like to because he's taking care of his flock. Maybe there's spiritual warfare going on in his life. Maybe he's depressed and lonely like 85% of pastors out there. You know, pastors are one of these, these um, vocations where suicide is higher. This includes veterinarians, dentists. I think there's a common theme that kind of runs through them. You deal with suffering a lot. People tend to criticize the position you're in. I'm sure a politician maybe is up there as well. Um, do you see the lack of empathy that I just had right there? <laughs> as soon as I ran for office, though, I'd be like, look, guys, lay off these politicians. This is hard work. This is how Christians understand Jesus' return. And this is why we can think about it and hope for it with anticipation. We know the one who is returning. We're confident in him and his mercy for us. The nature of judgment brings us hope for Jesus' return. The identity of the judge makes us anticipate his return. And then the measurement of the judgment invites us to participate. So notice in this Matthew passage, it's a very powerful passage, how Jesus divides the righteous from the unrighteous, how the judgment actually happens, the measurements for that judgment. It's based on acts of love and mercy and kindness. And there's this, these two themes in Scripture that sometimes seem to contradict themselves, which is, on the one hand, there are passages that are very clear that when Jesus comes back, everybody will be judged according to what they have done during their life. You will give an account for everything you have done. And then there are these other passages that say you'll be judged based on your faith. Justification by faith. It's your loyalty to Jesus, your trust in Jesus, that will be the basis of how you get separated out. The key to understanding these two potentially conflicting themes is to see that they're, they're actually one and the same thing. So the scriptures will say multiple times, faith without works is dead. If you say you've got loyalty to Jesus, if you say you trust in Jesus, but you don't act in love and mercy and kindness, it's just foolishness, right? It's faith in quotes, and it disappears when Jesus comes back. So it's one and two of the same thing. Your loyalty to Jesus, according to the scriptures, plays itself out in your obedience, in your um, Christ-likeness, in your acts of mercy and love and kindness to the helpless, to the voiceless. And this is how we are judged when Jesus comes back. Now, this, is, um, this means that what we're judged on is not unknown to us. I don't know if you've ever taken a class where you had the teacher and you were never sure what was going to be on the test. And it created all this anxiety when you're studying, right? Because I might spend 10 hours studying these vocab words and then I might be one vocab word on that test. That's not the case with Christians, with Jesus. We're not going to be surprised by the standards he lays down when he returns. We shouldn't be surprised. That's why these people are surprised in the parable. 
so that we don't have to be surprised when it actually happens, when Jesus does come. Whatever happens on Judgment Day will really just be a confirmation of what's already happening to you right now. This is either really good news or kind of, kind of worrisome to you. So I speak at a lot of youth camps, and, and at these camps you've got a lot of Christian kids who have been told they're Christian just because they, they have said a prayer, but there's no discernible evidence in their life that they're a Christian. And I, I, I have mercy towards these kids. I empathy, sympathize with them. I was one of them. But I also don't want to mislead them, right? If there's, n- if there's no evidence in your life that you're a Christian, nothing magic is going to happen when you die. And all of a sudden, you'll have this life of Christ-likeness behind you. If you don't really believe in Jesus right now and trust in him, nothing magic will happen when Jesus returns. And all of a sudden, you'll have this robust, real belief and trust in Jesus. Which is, which is good news, really. We don't have to wait to the future to know what our status is. So Paul will use this um, uh, same idea in terms of fruit, the fruit of the Spirit and the fruit of the flesh. He says these are symptoms of what kind of person you are. And one type of person is prepared for eternal life. The other kind of person is passing. It's not going to last. The Spirit will produce in people, what's the song? Love, joy, peace, patience. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, goodness, and self-control. I passed my Sunday school classes. Paul says those are the kind of people, those are symptoms, right, of someone whom, with, with someone in whom they've placed their trust in Christ. If, if you can look around your life and you see more love and more kindness and more self-control and more patience and more peace, then you can have a pretty good understanding of what will happen when this day comes. On the other hand, there's fruit of the flesh. There's symptoms, identifiers, signalers, people who, who haven't transferred over into God's kingdom yet, haven't repented of their sin and put their faith in Jesus. Murder, anger, envy, lust, stealing. Also, these are fruits of the flesh. These things are going to pass away. Not because God just is angry about them, right? But because God wants to reorder the world. He wants to get rid of all the bad things in the world. And unfortunately, if you embody what's bad in the world, then, then you're going to have a tough time fitting in when God reorders things. Jesus here in this parable says it's, it's the acts of, of mercy that we do or not do that right now can tell us what, what side of him will be on the left or the right. I want to read you a quote by a scholar. Um, just cause I, I thought it was just a perfect quote. I want to summarize. I want to just read it. He writes this about Matthew 25. Whatever the final judgment will be, it will not involve, involve God pulling down our pants to check for circumcision or scanning our brains for beliefs like products being scanned at a grocery checkout. No, God will examine the story of our lives for signs of Christ-likeness, for a cup of cold water or a plate of hot food given to one in need, for an atom of mercy shown to one who has been unkind or unthoughtful, for a visit to a prisoner, for an open door and a warm bed for a stranger, for a generous impulse indulged while a hurtful one denied. And Jesus returns, you'll notice he's not quizzing them on beliefs or creeds. 
Not because beliefs don't matter, but because you can tell what kind of the tree is, what kind of a tree is, what kind of the tree, the tree, but what kind of tree the tree is by the fruit that it produces. I need to sleep some more. Jesus comes back and, and he says, look, I don't even have to scan the brain. I don't need to know your beliefs. I know how, you, how you've been living. Let me, look for, let me look at the stories of your lives. Is there Christ-likeness there? Is there a spirit working and moving in there? Which is why this belief, this belief in the judgment of Jesus when he returns, is actually one that invites us to participate in his life right now. The judgment that accompanies the second coming of Christ is one that Christians actually hope for. It's one that we anticipate, and it's one that we participate in right now. Right now, we can live into the judgment that will happen when Jesus returns. And when he says, this was a person whom the Spirit was moving in. This was a person who had traces of Christ-likeness in themselves. They weren't perfect by any means. But they saw someone naked and they clothed them. There was a prison down the road and they went and visited they knew people were hungry, and they went and fed them. They saw someone naked, and they put some clothes on them. Judgment's not just a faraway possibility for us to, to hypothesize about. It's actually something for us to enjoy right now. It's an invitation into the participation of Christ's life, of his posture in the world, of love, sacrifice, peace. And so with the creed, we affirm that one day Jesus will come again to judge the living and the dead. And I hope this morning that that brings you hope, that you can anticipate that day, and that even now you can start to participate in the life that Jesus has come to give us, the life that will flourish when he returns. We pray with me. Father, we thank you for our time this morning. We thank you for the lessons that you've given us in Scripture. I thank you for this teaching from your, your mouth here in Matthew 25 about the final judgment. I pray that we would develop eyes and hearts to, to see your return as something that is hopeful, something that we can anticipate, as something that we can participate in. I pray that you would allow this, this passage in Matthew 25 to challenge us and to convict us. I pray that our, our loyalty to you would be evidenced by acts of kindness and mercy and love. I pray that if, if someone right now were looking at us, they'd see traces of Christ-likeness in our lives. And in five years, they'd see more Christ-likeness. And in 10 years, they'd see even more Christ-likeness. And that we can then be confident that when you come, you'll find those same things. Help us to go into the grave with some wool around us so you recognize us when you return. It's in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All God's people prayed, saying, Amen. We'll not participate.